All right. Um, so, as you can tell by the title, I, I'm going to confess something to you right up front. I don't know if I did this right, all right? So, uh, you know, we, when you come to the prophets in the Old Testament, it can be really difficult to walk through because some of the passages in the prophets are very hard to understand. And so, typically when I'm in my office on Monday, I kind of look at what I'm going to do, and I go, okay, I need to understand it first and make sure I've got it all down, right? So there's that part of it. Then there is the part where I go, all right, now how would I teach this to someone else if I were to teach it to them? And then, so I kind of think about it from different angles, what would make the most sense? And having done the first part, where I'm like, okay, I, I get where I, how I understand this and how this fits together in the rest of Scripture and all that kind of stuff, then thinking about how do I explain this to somebody maybe that's never been through it before or has never, has never read this passage before, has never studied it. Uh, and I never got a great answer on that one, all right? <laughs> so so uh, I could make an argument for doing this completely the opposite of the way that I'm going to do it, and maybe that would make so much more sense to you, and everybody would have been like, well, you should have just done that. And if I had a thought to do it that way, well, then I would have probably done it that way to begin with. But I'm going to give it the old college try, as they say. I'm going to lay it out there, and hopefully we're, we can all get on the same page. I, don't, I, I trust your ability to understand. I don't always trust my ability to communicate it in what's up here, all right? So that's going to be my, my effort today. And here's what I want to um, start with. We're, we're going to get to the book of Daniel, and um, we're not, I'm not going to do the book of Daniel, right? We're not going to go. It's not a study on the book of Daniel. What it is, really, is to say where Daniel sits in the story that of the Old Testament, of Scripture, and really what are the most significant and challenging passages of Daniel. And we're going to do the same thing for Ezekiel. So when, we're, when we do that, uh, there's a couple things you need to know. First of all, um, we're getting into some of what we typically refer to as apocalyptic literature. And anytime there is apocalyptic literature, these things, uh, the, the realities depicted within them, it, it's a bit like somebody came up to you and said, I had this dream last night that I want you to interpret. And in the dream, I was riding on a roller coaster, except instead of a car, it was a cat. And then instead of a, a, a track, we were on a wheel of cheese. And, and we went high up into the sky, and we touched Saturn, and then plummeted to Earth on the back of a cat on a wheel of cheese, and then said, interpret it. That's how you feel sometimes when you read the prophets, right? And when you read especially the apocalyptic literature. So there was a, there's a story that I heard a long time ago about a missionary that went to a country that I can't recall which country it was, and maybe I was never told, but it is a country where Christianity was outlawed and where you'd be killed to be a Christian. And here's this missionary in the midst of this country. He's building relationships with various people, and one day he gets a phone call from one of his neighbors, and his neighbor says, I want you to come to my house because I had a dream last night that I need you to interpret. The person inside the dream said you could interpret this dream for me. So the missionary, you know that feeling you get in your stomach where you get the bubble guts and you feel like everything just dropped to the floor and you're like, oh, what am I going to do? 
So the missionary goes, I, I've never interpreted a dream before in my life. I don't, I, I don't have the first clue as to what I'm doing. And the guy insisted, and he said, no, the person in the dream told me you specifically could interpret this. And he said, and this, this man was of a different faith altogether. And so he said, okay, well, I'll give it a shot. So I'll be over in just a second. So he comes over to his house, sits down in his living room, and the man says, so I'm, in my dream, I'm standing on a hill, and I'm looking into a valley. And in this valley is a shepherd, and he's tending sheep. And in this, in, he has this pen that he's bringing all the sheep into. And he brings the sheep in, and he turns to me up on the hillside, and he says, will you come into my sheep pen? And the missionary said, I think I got this one. <laughs> All right. So there are sometimes dreams make tons of sense, right? In a situation like that, you'd be like, All right, I got it. Sit down while I, while I wax eloquently about what your dream means. Okay. So there are some times where dreams do make sense or visions do make sense. And then the question that is asked is, why does the cat not make sense at all, the cat roller coaster, and why does the, the sheep pen make sense to you? It's because you understand what the images correlate to, right? You understand the connection. It's not because you're good at interpreting dreams, but you know what those images correlate to. The same is true of the prophetic books, especially when it gets to apocalyptic literature like Daniel or Ezekiel. Our biggest enemy is the Old Testament because we don't read it and we don't understand it, right? So when the Old Testament uses images from the Old Testament to give you this dream, we go, cat roller coaster, all right? I have no idea what you're talking about, okay? But if we really knew and read and studied and, and believed and poured over continuously and sat under teaching of the Old Testament, then probably it would sound a lot more like it does to Ezekiel or to Daniel when they're told a vision, okay? Well, that's going to be the case tonight, is this vision on the, on the, on the surface to you and to me is going to go like cat roller coaster. We're not going to make any sense. But if we really think about it, and if we look at some places in the Old Testament, maybe, and if we look at some places in the New Testament, and we really do our diligence, then a lot of it's going to make sense to us, okay? One caveat. There are some things in this that are very hard to understand, all right? These four verses that we're going to be looking at in Daniel 9, which you can go ahead and open your Bibles to, because we're going to be there, and it will help you to be in Daniel 9, um, these verses, these four verses in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, might be the most contested, debated, misunderstood, whatever you want to call it, argued over, least agreed upon verses in all of the Bible. All right? So I reserve the right to change my mind on the way I see this. All right? And I even reserve my right to change my mind tonight. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so, so I might decide differently tonight. I don't think I am, but it, it's possible. All right. I just wanted to set those caveats out there. So apocalyptic literature becomes really difficult. Let's understand the context of the book of Daniel. Daniel's the only book that spans the entire exile um, in that he is actively captive in the midst of this exile. 
He was a teenager when he was taken captive to Babylon during the first wave of exiles that left. And Daniel is, is still in Babylon as an old man when the Jews begin returning to Jerusalem somewhere around 537, 536 B.C., somewhere around there. They begin returning back to Jerusalem, and Daniel is still there in Jerusalem. So he's, he's been there the whole time. He's taken as a young man. So that, that makes Daniel a good bit different. Now, remember that the Babylonians were uh, eventually conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. This combination of Medes and Persians came in to actually take down the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. They were led by the king of Persia, who is Cyrus, and then he's going to put on the throne in the Babylonian territory a man by the name of Darius, who is, um, who is of a Mede descent. And so uh, in the book of Daniel, one thing that makes it so challenging is that every, almost every chapter he's under a different king, right? He's under Nebuchadnezzar for a lot of it, who is Babylonian. And then he's, he'll be under Darius in our chapter tonight. He's under, the point is, he, Babylon has changed hands, and he's been under all these kings, and some of them represent different nations. And the book of Daniel is, uh, it, it, may go, it may go back in time, it may go forward in time. It's not chronological in particular. So you, you kind of have to be on your toes to kind of see where all of this is, is working its way out. So, with that being said, let's look at uh, Daniel 9, 1 to 3. So we're going to go straight into Daniel 9, knowing that it's not going to help us to just go chapter by chapter necessarily through Daniel. Uh, if we were studying the book of Daniel, obviously we would do something like that. Um, but the, these opening verses, let, let's kind of understand what's happened so far. We're in chapter 9, we are in the setting, historically, where Babylon has been conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, by Cyrus. Darius has been placed on the throne in that region, okay? And uh, Daniel also realizes that this whole deal, this whole um, um, time of captivity, is coming to an end, just based on the timeline that's supposed to be there for him, this whole experiment of them being sent out into exile is coming to an end because he is well versed in his Old Testament and he remembers the prophecy of the prophet Jeremiah. I mean, he's just a young man when Jeremiah was, he may not have even been born at all when Jeremiah was on the scene, but Jeremiah gave a prophecy that told him, essentially, when this whole thing was coming to an end. And we can, we can read that in Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12. It says this, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, Making an end, uh, making the land an everlasting waste. So you see, the prophecy of Jeremiah is: after seventy years, I'm going to conquer the Babylonians. All right. Go back in your verse sheet, just the one passage before, to Daniel nine one to three. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. So Daniel finds himself 
First of all, under the authority of someone other than the Babylonians who have just been conquered, Jeremiah, all right? He also was one of the first ones taken out from captivity. So he's been in captivity 66 years, all right? Getting close to 70. So the prophecy of Jeremiah is coming to mind for him as he is reading, the, I guess, the scroll of Jeremiah, or he somehow, maybe he's got it memorized, I don't know, but... He, he's essentially, he's dwelling on, for one reason or another, the prophecy of Jeremiah. And he says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. The passage we just read. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So Jer- uh, Daniel reading those passages, looking at the situation around him, is going, just what Jeremiah said, it's coming to an end. So he commences to praying to the Lord. And his prayer to the Lord is basically, okay, what's next? Right? What, what, now, I really want the temple and Jerusalem to be restored. So now that the 60, at least 66 years of the 70 has passed, when are you going to restore the temple and Jerusalem? So he begins praying to that end. Lord, when are you going to do this? When are you going to restore this? I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to take just a second to flip to Daniel in my Bible. I would rather do that than flip back and forth on this packet. So, all right. So in Daniel 9, verse 16 and 18 give you a flavor of the prayer. This whole thing between, really between uh, the end of three and, uh, or I guess beginning of four and all the way to like verse 19 through verse 19 is all David's, I mean Daniel's prayer about this. Lord, when are you going to do these things? When are you going to restore the land of Jerusalem? So look at verse 16 as an example. Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all uh, who are around us. Look at verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. So you get the idea. Daniel is praying and he wants the temple and the city of Jerusalem to be restored now since Jeremiah's prophecy is coming to fulfillment. You get that? Okay. Um, so what happens? Well, with amazing speed and accuracy, in fact, while he's still praying, the angel Gabriel comes to him. Don't you wish when you turned to the Lord in prayer, an angel showed up to you and said, all right, here's your answer, right? Wouldn't that, I mean, wouldn't that, hey, Daniel's got it going on. Look at what he says in in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, which was earlier in the book, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand 
speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, I guess from God, saying, go, go answer. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Okay? So the setup to what we're going to talk about is an answer to Daniel's prayer about what comes next. And Lord, please restore Jerusalem. So Gabriel has been dispatched by the heavenly court to go answer Daniel and tell him a lot of stuff in four verses, which now become the most confusing verses in all of Scripture for us. All right? So as we endeavor to understand these, just bear with me. All right? I'm going to try to make them make sense as best I can. I don't have all the answers. And I will say this also. If four pastors got up here, no, 34 pastors took turns talking about what these four verses mean, you would have 34 different interpretations, at least somewhat. All right? The only thing I'm going to do is I'm going to try to walk through these verses and explain the way I see them fitting with the rest of Scripture, all right? Understand? So if you disagree with me, and if you end up going, hey, I don't know what, I've never heard this before. You need to go back to last week and listen to last week's podcast of this time, and, ex and it'll explain why I land where I land, why I come to the conclusions that I come to, all right? Some of you have never heard this before, I promise you, because you grew up under a different way of understanding the Bible, which we talked about again last week, and so don't throw anything at me and don't hurt me, all right? I'm just saying, all right. Daniel 9, 24. We're going to read 9, 24, and 25, then we're going to go back and look more intently at them. According to Daniel 9, 24, he says 70 weeks have been declared, all right? The word translated weeks in the ESV literally means a unit of seven things. So in other words, it's like someone saying to him, or Gabriel saying to him, 70 sevens has been decreed. And so what that probably means is 70 sevens of years. All right? This is the beginning of the confusion. I can see it on your faces, all right? Think of this as 70 groups of seven years. Each group has seven years in it, all right? It's like a bucket, all right? You've got 70 buckets. Inside each bucket is a group of seven years. You tracking with me so far? All right, okay, I'm feeling optimistic. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know if I could get through that. Okay. <laughs> all right, so let's read verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness in, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Okay, so we're going to go back into that verse in just a minute. Just bear with me, all right? So, first things first, 77s are coming to him. And he says, this is, and, and what that is, is 70 groups of 70 of seven years in each group right got it 70 sevens okay tracking so far now remember daniel 9 25 
seems to discuss the decree that inaugurates, that, in other words, that begins this whole prophecy that he's laying out, these 70 weeks. And that is to restore and build Jerusalem, which we know is accomplished by Cyrus of Persia. Let's read verse 25 and just try to think, okay, this is what he's talking about here is when Cyrus makes this decree. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one. I'm going to pause right there because if we go any further, I might lose you. Okay, so just hold on for a second. So he says, from the decree that goes out to the coming of the anointed one. All right? So he's setting a time frame, and that decree that goes out is, I think, biblically, the decree that Cyrus gave to go rebuild, to give permission to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple. All right? Now, the reason that I think that is several passages in your, in your packet you might want to look at. Okay? Look at 2 Chronicles 36, 21 to 23. Verse 21. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, remember he's reading Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days that lay desolate it kept Sabbath, to fulfill 70 years. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus Cyrus, king of per Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. This is the decree. Cyrus gave it, right? That's the decree that he's saying from that moment, which is in 538, 39, right there, right thereabouts. But look at Isaiah 44, 28. Um, uh, 44, 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Isaiah 45, 13. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. He's going to build his city and his temple. And this is Cyrus he's talking about, right? So I think the decree that he's talking about there in 25, that Cyrus's release of the prisoners to go, to go uh, which is totally unheard of. Who conquers a land and then releases all the slaves, Right? Nobody. The only one that did that was Cyrus, and the only reason he did that was because it tells you in Second Chronicles, the Lord turned his heart. All right? They can try all they want, but there you go. So, 539, Babylon falls to Cyrus of Persia. The very year sensing the completion of Jeremiah's prophecy, Daniel commences to praying for the restoration of, Jer of Jerusalem. Gabriel, as God's messenger, responds to Daniel in prayer with this prophecy of 70 weeks that's coming, the beginning of which is a decree to go rebuild and restore the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So in 538, Cyrus gives this decree to go out and do that. 
And the point then is this. The decree of Cyrus in 539 and 538 is both the conclusion of Jeremiah's prophecy of captivity and the beginning of Daniel's 70 weeks of prophecy of restoration in 925. So far, are we clear on that? Okay. You're good. No, you're good. You're, you're good. I'm trying to say it, if I can say it one more time. Okay. So, the, the, when, when Cyrus makes the decree, 538, that is, Jeremiah has reached his end. Okay? We're, we're pretty much done with Jeremiah. And Daniel's 70 weeks that Gabriel is now giving to him starts. In other words, in other words the clock on Gabriel's proclamation here, as soon as Cyrus makes that decree... The clock starts, right? I'm going to spoil something for you, though, because I just did this, and I hate that I just did that. I would regret, I would wish I could rewind. You're going to be disappointed if you think that I'm going to mathematically prove everything to you tonight, all right? Okay? I, I, sorry. I'm sorry, Bob Brooks. I love you. I love you. You're a brother of mine, but, and I know you're a mathemagician, all right? I am not, and so I, I just don't think it's written for that purpose. Okay, but... The point is, the 70 weeks starts. What, what Gabriel's talking about starts now. Okay. Um, all right, so where am I? Okay. Let's go to the next page. All right. So let's go back now to Daniel 9.24, and I hope my iPad holds up on me, and I'm going to be able to do this. Okay. So we're going to look here, and I want you to see a few things. All right. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Now I'm going to, for, for all intents and purposes, I'm going to ignore this part for just a minute, okay? Until the very end. All right. But we're going to get here several things that these weeks are going to accomplish. So verse 24 is laying out for us what Gabriel is, is going to tell Daniel is going to be accomplished in these 70 weeks. Okay? This is what's going to happen in these 70 weeks. Which remember, we say week... But it's not a week like you're thinking about it. 70 groups of seven years. Got it? Okay. So he says, here's what's going to happen. First, uh, finishing the transgression. That's number one. Okay? We're going to put an end to sin. That's number two. To atone for iniquity. That's number three. To bring in everlasting righteousness. That's number four. Uh, I'm running out of colors. All right, here we go. To seal both vision and profit. That's number five. And to anoint a most holy... Uh-oh. All right. It literally says to anoint a most holy. That's it. Place is put there by the ESV. It's thrown in there. It's going to be a noun, but it could be one. It could be person. Probably like this would be kind of the same thing. It could be thing. It could be place. But it's to anoint a most holy, and I think it's person to anoint a most holy one, all right? But it literally has nothing after holy. 
because they want to confuse you as much as possible. <laughs> They're trying to be helpful. But, but listen, there are times, I'm just going to tell you, there are times in Bible translation where you've got a decision to make. And the choices are not obvious. The answer is not obvious. So you're going to have to make a decision. And you're going to have to put something in there to make the sentence resolve in English. Right? But for, I, I think what is being said here is to anoint a most holy one. And I'll show you why that's in a second. Let me ask you, when you read this, where does your mind go to? Yeah. I, I read this to my kids at the dinner table just an hour ago, and I said, I just want to do an experiment, set up the kind of story. I'm just going to read this. What does this make you think of? And my son, Andrew, said, Jesus, when he dies. Right? And I was like, yeah, your mind's going there already. Let your mind go there, okay? That's okay. All right? Okay. I did this to my kids, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but, but I was just seeing, like, I was, I was kind of seeing, like, I think this, your mind will naturally go there if you just read it, and, and, and it does, but then place makes you go, huh? It kind of throws you off a little bit, right? Okay, so hopefully that makes a little sense. So 924 makes clear that the goal of a 70-week prophecy is sixfold in nature, one, to finish or restrain the transgression. To put an end to sin, that's two, or to seal up sin. To atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet. And six, to anoint a most holy place, thing, or one. All right? Okay, so it's sixfold. Six things that are going to be accomplished. And that's them. Here is what I think all six of those mean. Okay? So I'm just going to go through them. You don't have a blank to fill in right now, right? So just look right here. Okay, here we go. Are you ready for this? First, it, 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 he says, and I'm going to make sure I got it right here. Okay, so first, he says to finish the transgression. All right? What is that? Well, the transgression that Daniel has been referring to in the context is the transgression of the people of Israel in their sin that led to the destruction of the temple and the destruction of their city and their exile. So Gabriel comes in and says, first thing that's going to happen is we're going to put an end to this transgression, right? So we got to bring an end to the sin that was brought about here, this, this ongoing hard-heartedness in Israel. Some of you sense where I'm going already. You're going to bring an end to that hard-heartedness that led to the destruction of your city and then that led to ultimately your exile. Hey, we got to do that, all right? Second, the, number, the second one here, which is put an end to sin. Now, some of you are going, well, I still sin. Anybody else still sin? I still sin. All right, okay, sure. I think it speaks to the justification of God's people in His holy court that happened through Jesus. Now, do you still sin right now? Yes, but look at what what is said in Romans 6, 2. Paul presents sin as an impossibility. Listen to this. By no means. He said, first, in verse, verse 1, he says, should we go on sinning so that grace should abound? And he says, by no means. 
How can we who died to sin still live in it? Well, you say, I still sin. Yes, that's true. But in what way has sin been put to an end? In God's heavenly court. You have been, by the blood of Christ, declared righteous. Yeah? So he says we've got to put an end to sin. And I think that's what he means. All right. Third, which I think this is the easiest one, he says to atone for iniquity. Not only does the sin have to be ended, but the sin also has to be atoned for. You notice there's an order to these that are kind of going on here. Uh, that sin has to be atoned for. I think this, this uh, pertains to the propitiatory sufferings of Jesus. He went to the cross, he shed his blood, he suffered the wrath of God for you, and therefore he basically set you apart, and he atoned for all of your iniquity. It was put on him for his people, okay? Fourth, I think fourth, when he says to bring in everlasting righteousness, I think he's talking about the righteousness of God's people that goes on now before him forever. Again, do you notice that there's an order to this? this is, he's laying this out sort of in chronological order, if, if you will. All right. Five. All right. When he says to seal both vision and profit. When you hear the word profit, what do you think of? Okay, God's mouthpiece in which set of books? New or old? Old, old Testament, right? So I think what he's saying here is that in all of this that he's doing, that he's accomplishing in these 70 weeks, he's bringing to a conclusion. He's sealing up, making a nice, you know, putting a tight bow on all the stuff in the Old Testament, okay? So that vision and prophet are no longer the, what pertains to God's people any longer, okay? So he's bringing it into the season of preparation, like all the uh, feasts and festivals and things like that, all the foreshadowing, David and Moses and all these foreshadowing things, and, uh, and, and type, like we've talked about types, uh, the Passover lamb and things like that. What we know to be the time of the old covenant will be sealed up because its purpose will have been completed, been fulfilled. It's the old wineskin, right? Okay, yeah. So then six, he says, to anoint a most holy one, I think, and I think that's a reference to Jesus, specifically referring back to his anointing to carry God's message. We, we, we see that anointing there in the baptism of Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit comes on him, and it never leaves, right? This is his, uh, the, the anointing of the Most Holy One. Okay, tracking with me so far, okay? All right, not asking if you agree, but you're tracking with me, and that's good, okay? Now, 925. He says, no, this is going to be the hardest one, all right? So just bear with me here, all right? All right, help me out. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And there's a period there. And then it says, then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And I think that's probably the most confusing way it could have been translated and not helpful at all for me tonight, okay? Here is, you might have a note next to that if you're looking in your Bible. Do you have a note at the end of, um, uh, let's see, 
at the end of, it might be at the end of 62 weeks, or it might be at the end of um, seven weeks. There might be a note, and it says, or, what does it say? Does it say anything? Anybody have it? What is it? Okay, yeah, so it, there's an there's a alternative translation for this that is equally as plausible, and, it's, and the alternative translation is, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, it shall be built again. Okay? Which is the position that I take. And what I think he's saying here is, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay? So in other words, the call goes out, build Jerusalem and the temple, and that's going to take some time, which here is labeled seven weeks. Then, from the time that the, the temple is built and the city is built, there's going to be 62 weeks until the anointed one comes. Tracking with me so far? Okay, so in other words, what I think is being said here, just to state it really simply, I think 925 sets a time frame from the proclamation to rebuild to the coming of the anointed prince at 69 weeks. That is, seven to build and another 62 until this person, this prince, comes. We don't find out who the prince is until the next verse, okay? But he just says the prince is coming. And he's going to come at the end of basically 69 weeks, which he labels as 62 plus 7. 69 total groups of seven years apiece. 69 buckets with seven years in each bucket. Got it so far? Okay, I think this refers first to the proclamation to rebuild given by Cyrus. That starts it. Seven weeks until that the temple is built. And then... Once it's finished, it's, he even says there at, at the end of it, which kind of helps give you a little bit of clue, he says, it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time, meaning they're going to have this temple and this city there, but are they going to rule the land? No, and they don't again, okay? They don't again, so it's a troubled time. All right, tracking with me so far? Not asking if you agree, but you, you, so far you're tracking. All right. Hopefully you're going, I don't see why this is so hard. You know? Maybe. I don't know. All right. 926. Uh, he says, and after the 62 weeks, okay, which is, that's technically seven to build the temple. Now after the 62, the set of 62 weeks. Now we're, six, we're at 69. Now we're into the 70th week, right? So we're at the end already. Just like that. You're at the end. Look at that. It's crazy. After the 62 weeks, which that makes us in week 70, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Okay? That's the first thing. And the people of the prince who is to come, that's the one that we just heard about, who's going to come at the end of 69 weeks. Okay, here he is. The prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It shall in, it, its end shall come with a flood, uh, 
and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. The desolation was originally, in Daniel, understood to be the destruction of the temple that got them into exile in the first place. Okay? But what's being prophesied by Gabriel is something different is happening now. There's anointing. There's taking away of sin and iniquity. There is all of these things that make this desolation altogether different than the one that preceded it. Yes? Are you tracking with me? The one that preceded it, going out to Babylon, was because the hearts of the people were hard, and their city was destroyed and everything like that. That was the desolation then. And so when you hear the word desolation, as a Jew, you're going, oh no, our temple's going to be destroyed. Our city's going to be destroyed. That's what the word means. And now he's saying desolations are decreed. So this prince that comes in is going to lay waste to Jerusalem and to its temple and destroy it altogether. Desolations are decreed. But Daniel is not to be disheartened by that because what he said at the beginning, listen, what we're going to do differently is during this time, iniquity is going to be taken care of. Your sin is going to be atoned for. This is going to be qualitatively different than the desolation that came before it. You tracking with me so far? I'm getting more optimistic as we go. <laughs> no, it's not you. Yeah, again, it's not you. It's, it's whether or not this can be communicated. Okay. All right. So 926 tells Daniel that sometime following the finishing of the temple, two things will take place. First, an anointed one will be cut off. Hopefully you're kind of getting your antennas up. What are you thinking? All right, good. It's a softball, right? You know, the Sunday school teacher asks, what's brown and furry and runs in, this, runs in the trees? And the kid says, I think it's a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's the easy, it's the Sunday school answer, okay? So, uh, so, so the anointed one will be cut off. The second thing is that affirmation prince in verse 25, with his people coming, so he's going to bring his people with him, will destroy Jerusalem along with its rebuilt temple. I think the first, as you've already pointed out, refers to Jesus. And the prince, I think, is Titus along with the Roman armies that came to destroy the temple in 70 AD. Build, tear down, build, tear down, build, tear down. Yes, indeed. So, here's this prince who comes in with his people to tear it down. Now, I'm hoping that by the end of this, you're going to go, what else would people think about this passage, right? Because there are some wild interpretations. All right. Okay. So Jesus is the one that's cut off, and then Titus comes in. Okay, now it gets kind of difficult. All right, you ready? Remember what we just read in verse 26. Verse 27 looks to be parallel to verse 26. Okay? I want to show this to you if I can. So here we've got after 62 weeks. All right, so we're going to set that aside. All right, I'm going to switch to blue here. An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Okay? And then I'm going to go to, uh, let's see, green. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and its sanctuary. Okay? It's going to be a desolation. All right? So it says in 27, he shall make, what is this? A strong covenant with many 
for one week. Does that, does that sound like somebody? And, and this, this covenant that here is listed as strong is also superior. Strong. He's going to make a superior covenant. Right? All the other covenants, the feasts, all of that, the prophet, the, I'm going to seal up the prophet and Old Testament and all that that he just said he was going to do. He says this new one that's coming, that's going to be cut off, he's going to make a superior covenant. So he's going to bring all that together, and he's going to make a better one. Does this sound familiar? Surely not. No. I bet you couldn't share the gospel from this, could you? All right, there you go. Uh, and for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. All right. Now, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. You've heard of the abomination of desolation. And the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Here is, I think, the parallel. The green is parallel to the green, and the blue is parallel to the blue. The one that's cut off and shall have nothing is coming to make a strong covenant with many for one week, and he's going to put an end to sacrifice and offering. How is he going to do that? Go back to what Gabriel told you at the beginning. He's going to atone for sin. He's going to put an end to sin. He's going to make, he's going to make atonement for iniquity. That's how he's going to do it. He's going to bring in a stronger covenant. And what's going to be the result of that? But an end to sacrifice and offering. Now Jesus is going to do that for the first half of it. The desolator is going to do it for the second half of it. So we're in the last week. We're in the 70th week. Jesus comes in to make an end to offering and sacrifice through his atoning work for his people so they now no longer have to make sacrifice for their sins. He's put an end to iniquity. The desolator comes in in 70 A.D., and he puts a physical end to the ability to make sacrifice. How? Destroys the temple. Now they can't. So, do you see the parallels there? Does it make sense? It's lined up? Okay. So, 927, I think, is parallel to, ni to 926. The anointed one that's cut off will make a strong or superior covenant with many for the final, the 70th week. He will make an end to sacrifice and offering, at which point the abomination that makes desolate when the prince and his people uh, destroy the temple once and for all. What does Jesus say in Matthew 23, 38, when he walks away from the temple and he's preparing his disciples for the day when Rome marches in and destroys that temple. What does he say when he's looking at the temple and he's talking to it like it's a person and he's talking to it like all the Jews can hear him? He says, Your house has been left to you desolate. Desolation is not just the destruction of the temple. Desolation is when the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. So there's an abomination that happens, which is the iniquity of the people, the sacrifice on the altar, all of those things, that then makes the glory of the Lord disappear from the temple, and it brings on destruction. Jesus, in Matthew 23, is there with his disciples in the temple, or he, he leaves the temple, and he goes to the Mount of Olives across from the temple, and he's looking at it, he has now left the temple. The physical glory of God on earth in the flesh has left the temple 
And he's standing where Ezekiel stood so many years ago when the glory of the Lord departed in Ezekiel's day before the Babylonians marched in. And Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that killed the apostles, the prophets, how many times would I have gathered you? But you were unwilling. So your house is left to you desolate. In other words, I've left. I'm here where Ezekiel was, where the glory of the Lord departed, and was, was now what's going to happen? Your house being left to you desolate, Rome's going to march in, and then he turns to his disciples and he prepares them for that day when Rome marches in and destroys the temple. You get it? See how it's coming together? Okay. So, this means that the first half of Daniel's 70th week runs from the baptism of Jesus to 70 A.D. The destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in 70 A.D. is that, that middle of the week, that turning point where the desolator now makes an end to the temple. And then the rest of the week, the last half of the week, is the present church age that we're currently living under. Okay? I'm not saying you have to see it that way. I'm saying that's the way I think it makes the most sense, not only with the text that's in front of us, but also with the rest of the Bible. Okay? Now, there are other arguments. Good friends, I'm saying, that make it different. Okay? But now I want to show you why I think that's the case. Why this? Why? Because some people ask, like, when you give, when you talk about, you know, apocalyptic literature and stuff like that, people go, you explain it. And then they say, well, why didn't he just say that? Right? Don't they? Like, why didn't he just say it like that? I would have understood that. All right? Anybody else feeling it? Maybe? A little bit? Okay. So, just an image. I don't know if this helps, but that's basically just what I just said. Okay? Tracking with me? All right. Going to the next slide. It seems that the time frame that Gabriel gives for all of this is not for Daniel to mark a specific date on his calendar, but it's given because of the significance of seven, the number seven, for both the Sabbath and for the year of Jubilee. All right, let's read this, okay? Leviticus 25. <coughs> Leviticus 25, 8 to 12. Let's read verse 8. You shall count seven, what is it? Weeks of years. So when Daniel, when Gabriel says to Daniel, 70 weeks, and he goes on to account for 490 years, 70 sevens, Daniel immediately goes to years, even though he doesn't have the modifier years. Why? Because Daniel, I think, knows Leviticus 25. And immediately when he hears this, his mind goes to the year of Jubilee. And this is really important, okay? 25, 85. You shall count seven weeks of years. Seven times seven years, which is how many? 49 years. So that the time of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month on the day of, what is it? Atonement. You shall sound the trumpet throughout all the land. So he's telling him when the sins are atoned for, shout the trumpet. All right? 
It's the year of Jubilee. And you shall consecrate, what year is it? The 50th year, and proclaim, what is it? Liberty throughout all the land and all its heaven. Look what happens. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each, when, when each of you shall return to his, pro, to his property, and each shall return to his clan, that 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. The field's going to produce enough for you that you want to plant. You won't have to do anything. It's, you're going to let the land completely rest, totally for a year. You know how much dependence that's going to take for you? It's the same dependence they were supposed to do in the Sabbath every week is rest and make sure that they trusted that God was going to provide for them. Well, in the year of Jubilee, they got to do it for a whole year. But they also have to do several different things. The year of Jubilee granted the return of all property to its original owner. If, you, if somebody sold you property to get out of debt, you could only keep it for a max 49 years before you had to give it back. All right? It returned back to them. It wasn't theirs to give, but they could make money off of it to get out of debt. Second, the release of all Jewish slaves. All people in captivity had to be released. The cancellation of debts, and the land is to rest for the entire year. Okay? Tracking with me so far. Okay. What is being described here by Gabriel is not, Daniel, start your stopwatch, look at your calendar. Let me just pause for just a second. This is going to be, a, well, you need this, okay. Has anybody ever been to an island anywhere? Vacation, something like that? Just been to a really relaxed, beachy kind of atmosphere? Okay, have you ever, have you, ever you know, had a meeting with somebody? You say like, okay, meet, meet with me at like 2 p.m. or something like that? And they show up at 5 o'clock? <laughs> and they say, what is it? Island time, all right? We have a watch on our wrist, an, an I, uh, Apple watch. We got in our pocket, we got an iPhone. My calendar is right here. It tells me what the next event is, okay? I've got, in my, I've got not only the time there, but then I get notifications. You need to leave. You're this many miles away, and you got to get here, and you got to leave right now, okay? I got time on my phone. I got calendars everywhere I look. It pops up on my computer, my, my phone, my watch, my everything, right? Our lives are governed chronologically. Daniel lives on island time. All right? When the angel says to him 490 years, he's not going, okay, I'm starting my clock now. All right? He's not. Now, it's got to be in the ballpark. All right? You got to have the meeting on the day. All right? Within a few hours, I get it. Right? But people are looking out going, oh, the sun's about, yeah, it's about 2 o'clock. And they go. Right? So Daniel's just like that. He's not looking at the, at the clock. Case in point, Gabriel comes to him when he's been in captivity for 66 years and says, hey, it's ended. But Jeremiah prophesied 70. Let this trip you out. Some people had only been in captivity for 40 plus years. And the 70 years has come to an end. We're rounding, all right? We're in the ballpark, but we're, we're rounding. Okay, so what's being described here by Gabriel are the series of events that are roughly... Ten jubilees away when God's people will enter into God's great era of jubilee. So what is being described in terms that relate back to Leviticus 
chapter 25 and correlate to the year of Jubilee, and Daniel realizes, wait a second, 49 times 10, 49 is the year of Jubilee, times 10, this is a, like a, a big celebration of Jubilee, this is 490 years. What's being described here is the end of sin, the atoning of iniquity. No more will we be slaves at all. This is not just a year of Jubilee. This is a spiritual year of Jubilee. This is a spiritual era of Jubilee where God actually comes in and sets all of His people free. So it begins with salvation, with rest of, the, of, of all His people and His land, freedom from sin of His people. It culminates then in the new heavens and the new earth described in Revelation 21 and 22. However, let's, let's, let's just make it a little bit more profound. Could we? All right. Look at what's being described in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. This is Isaiah getting to the end of his book, and he's describing the year of Jubilee, what it's going to be like what you just read in Leviticus 25. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim, what is it? Liberty to the captives. You're set free. This is Jubilee language. Oh goodness, we're set free. The opening of the prison to those who are bound... The prisoners are set free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So it's both the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn. Man, that's amazing, isn't it? Isaiah says, look, the end of all things is going to come. And when it comes, it's going to be like the year of Jubilee, but it's God's Jubilee. He sets free the captives. All those held under the bondage of sin and the weight of oppression and iniquity are all going to be set free by, by what we find out is the blood of Jesus. So Jesus gets baptized. And then he goes into the synagogue in Luke 4. And he says he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as, he was, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see what Jesus is saying? He said, he just read a passage out of Isaiah and say, Yeah, I'm the fulfillment of that, yeah. They're all thinking of the year of Jubilee. They're thinking of where that occurs in Isaiah where Isaiah is referencing God's year of Jubilee, Jesus stands up and reads it, and his, ex, his, his, uh, his expository sermon on it is, it's fulfilled in your hearing. The year of Jubilee is here, and I'm bringing it, he's saying. Look at what Leviticus 25.10 says, And you shall consecrate the 50th year, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property and each shall return to his clan. You've been released. But look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 through 6, 2. For our sake, 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. That's again jubilee language. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So what Paul is saying is that in the atonement that Christ brought, now is God's jubilee year. And so the proclamation that goes out is to all those who are held in the bondages of iniquity and sin. You have been released by the blood of Christ. Believe and receive salvation that He gives. You tracking? So what Gabriel tells Daniel, as Daniel's praying, Lord, I want the city restored and I want the temple restored. And Gabriel comes to him and says, I've got good news for you. It's going to be so much better. Yes, there's going to be a temple. Yes, there's going to be a city. But what's even better than that? Atonement for iniquity. The desolation that comes to the temple is not going to come to you. That's the hope in Christ. That's what Jubilee brings. Is that now the desolation of some building doesn't come to me. Because I'm secured in Christ. He's given me salvation. So what I've been saying, what I was saying last week, what hopefully you've heard so much through the prophets, is the vast majority, I'm not going to say all, the vast majority of the prophecy of the Bible, if you hear somebody saying, well, it's yet to come, it's a day in our future, probably not. Most of the time, we read the passages in the Old Testament, the day that the prophets are looking forward to is the day in which you now live under the governance of King Jesus. And if you live under His governance in freedom from sin, freedom from bondage, freedom from death and destruction, and eternity in hell, then you have every reason to be jubilant. Yeah? All right. We can come back to questions next week. Right, we're going to pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what has happened in Christ. And I, least of all, don't want to be one to stand up here and misrepresent your word. And I pray that that's not been done today. And I hope that whatever has been heard and retained and understood here would be for our benefit, our blessing, and would actually be true. That's what we want more than anything else. So we pray that all of that would be for our, for our hearts to, be, to run after you, to find forgiveness and salvation in the cross of Christ, to know that I stand before you condemned, a man to die, who would, if released to his land, just go back into captivity again because I sin. Yet in Christ... Your wrath has been poured out on him instead of me. That you have shown me mercy and grace in Christ that I cannot enumerate. That I no longer have to live under the bondage of the law, but can be free by grace in Christ. Thank you. We pray that this be a blessing to all of us, an encouragement to our soul, and a building up of the body in Jesus' name. Amen.